0: I love seeing everybody greet one another in the peace of Christ. It's good for us to be able to uh, to gather together to do that. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I hope we can do that soon. Man, last week was a was a fun Sunday for us together as we have joined as one new church. I especially loved the reading uh, and signing of the new membership commitment that we did last Sunday. And we read the main part of that out loud over one another, but we didn't read the commitment that the elders are making to you as members. And so before we jump into Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, I wanted just to take a moment to do that. So this will be up on the screen. This is the collective elders of our church, our commitment to you. It says, The elders of Redeeming Grace Church commit themselves to not only uphold and administer this commitment in a manner that is biblical, patient, loving, redemptive and Christ-exalting, but also to set an example and join you in fulfilling the responsibilities of church membership. We are in this with you as fellow members of this church, and we look forward to serving you and also serving alongside of you, serving together with you. So before we dive into God's word, John is going to read our scripture for today from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner before the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you would be exalted today, that you'd be glorified today. We thank you for the opportunity we've already had to lift our praises to you in song and now having your word read and diving into now your word preached. We pray that that would continue to be the case, that the name of Christ would be exalted today. We thank you for the gift it is of gathering together as your people, as the church, and we thank you for the good news of grace. And so we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would work in this time, that you'd work in our hearts and in our lives, both individually and corporately as this community together for our good, for your glory, and for the good of others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amy and I have been married for almost 18 years. There'll be 18 years in June. And uh, after we we dated all through college, we got married right after Amy graduated from college and we had a a great wedding ceremony, an awesome party and a wonderful honeymoon. We got back from our honeymoon uh, on the Sunday of that week and I was going back to work on that Monday. And I remember that night when we're in our little apartment out in Leesburg at the time, we were getting ready to go to bed for that first night in our new place and we both cried. Not because we were sad about getting married, it wasn't like we were like, what in the world did I just do? There wasn't regret about joining together and being married to one another, it was just the reality of what had taken place that kind of hit us. Like we're in this together now, just me and you, walking in this journey as this new family with one another. I remember that night very well, and it was a, a, an important time in our marriage, a moving time, as we thought about moving forward as a new family. It was just a lot for us. It felt like a lot for a then 22 and almost 22-year-old. Well, last week, like we said, was a big week for our church. We officially joined two churches together to be one new Redeeming Grace Church. It was an awesome day, and it makes me excited. It makes me hopeful for what God is already doing in our midst and what he's going to continue to do in our midst. Last week was awesome, but now we have to and we get to move forward together into this new reality. That's why we've decided to take the first nine Sundays we have with one another as we begin this new chapter in our story, in our journey with one another, to dive into God's word and to really open up God's word and see who he's calling us to be. We're not called to be successful from the world's standards. Who God is calling us to be is faithful, to be a faithful church by his standards Last week, Mark began our sermon series and really laid the groundwork by diving into Ephesians chapter 1 and showing us the faithfulness of our God towards us, that he rescued and redeemed rebels like you and me. And today, we're going to continue, as you just heard read from Ephesians 4, continue in Ephesians and look at our call to faithful unity. Unity, that's a big word. And I think that most of us, whether we call ourselves followers of Jesus or not, would agree that unity is a good thing, that that's something we should be about. It matters. But what is it exactly? And and why does it really matter to be unified and united to others? Why does it matter for us to be faithful to the call and commands of King Jesus? That's why I'm excited for our text today. I really believe that by the help of the Spirit, as we dive into it, that God will use it to help us to understand the what and the why and the how of biblical unity. Listen, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm glad that you're here today. We're so grateful you're here as you are learning and thinking about who Christ is and what that might mean for your life. And my hope for you today is that what you'll hear and what you'll see is the kind of community that we long to be. It'll compel you to jump in with us on your journey to Jesus. If you're already a follower of Christ, but maybe this church is new to you and you're checking it out and you're wondering, is this the place that God would have me be? Is this the community that God would have me to be a part of? I hope what you hear and see today is who we're striving to be and that you'll go all in with us. And if you're already a member of this church, man, I love you guys. I'm thankful for you. I know I don't know all of you yet, but I hope to get to know more and more of you. And my hope for you today is as you hear God's word preached, that God would do two things, that he would encourage you to think about who you are and who we are together, but also challenge you to look inward and think about what might be going on in your own heart and mind as you look around at the people in this room and a part of that are part of this church so that we could strive for faithful unity In order to be the faithful church that God is calling us to be as we move forward together. So let's dive into Ephesians chapter 4 this morning and may God bless the preaching of his word. Paul's call to unity is in verse 3. That's where he speaks primarily about this. But before we get to verse 3 and really try to understand the, the what and the how and the why of unity. We need to take a little journey. And start back in verse 1 to understand our first point, the foundation of our unity. Look at verse 1 again. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Every time we see the word therefore in scripture, it should be a clue for us to take a moment and consider what has just been said. Therefore is the gorilla glue of the Bible. Like it binds and holds things together. It takes two different ideas and brings them together and sticks them to one another, connecting these things to each other. What it means is that we won't understand what's about to be said if we don't understand what has just been said. We have to understand what's going on here. And so Paul's saying, therefore, in light of everything I've written in chapters one through three, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, the word walk here and throughout scripture is an indication to us that they're talking about the whole of our life, of how we live moment by moment, day by day, the entirety of our living. So he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. But what exactly is our calling? Well, it's what we heard Mark preach on last week the gloriousness of Christ's redemption that he's given us, that he's planned before the foundation of the world. And it's what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter two. Like, I think it would be a miss for us not to at least hear these words read over us this morning out of Ephesians chapter two. Maybe you've heard these many times. Maybe you're hearing them for the first time this morning. Just look at your Bible. Look at the screen. Listen to this calling that God has on your life. From Ephesians chapter two, Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Man, what a rich text. That you were a child of wrath, disobedient, going your own way, trying to do your own thing. But God didn't leave you to your devices. He came after you and he sought you. While you were dead in your sin, God lavished mercy on you and made you alive in Christ, adopting you into his family. But it's not because you were smart. It's not because you figured it out. It's not because you had an insight in some way that someone else didn't. It's because God gifted this faith to you and made you see the gloriousness of Christ and repent and believe the gospel and raised you up to new life in Christ and now prepares these works for you to walk in. If you want to know what your calling is, this is it. This is your calling. If you are in Christ, if you've repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, this is who you are now. So we need to understand that biblical calling isn't about vocation, it's about identity. It's about identity. This isn't first about what you do, but who you are. A redeemed child of God saved by grace to do good works for his glory. Everything flows from that. So we have to understand that a changed life leads to changed living not the other way around. A changed life leads to changed living. This is what Paul's saying here. It's out of this new identity that he, a prisoner of the Lord is urging them, is urging us to live in a certain way, to live in a manner that's consistent with who we are now. This sets the foundation. It sets the foundation for what he's about to say in verses two through three, what he's about to say about fostering our unity. Look at verses one and two together. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You know, one of the most striking things about this for me is that Paul unpacks the gospel in such an amazing way in chapters one, two, and three of Ephesians. And he could have talked about all kinds of things that we should now do in light of that, but where he begins is how we relate to one another. That's where he goes first, how we interact in relationship with the people we're in community with. What this means is is that your calling is not a solo endeavor. It's not just you and Jesus. You can't survive on your own in your relationship with Christ. He saved you, but brought you into a community, saved you, but brought you into a family. In other words, how you'll live a life that is worthy of the calling, how you'll live a life that reflects the glorious grace of redemption that you've received, is with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. Now, there's some familiar words in here that we've probably heard before, but what do they really mean? What is humility? Well, as C.S. Lewis famously said, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's a recognition of who you are before God, that you are a dependent creature that is in desperate need of grace, just like everyone else around you. See, the opposite of humility is pride, thinking too much of yourself or too highly of yourself. A humble person isn't the center of attention. The humble person doesn't see themselves as the most important person in the room. No, they're approachable and they're unassuming and they want to lean in and they want to learn from those around them. They have a right view of self, not an inflated view of themselves. What about gentleness? Gentleness is an embodied kindness, an embodied kindness. A gentle person is compassionate. They're not harsh or reactionary when it comes to how they engage those around them. They're not easily exasperated or angered. A gentle person comes with open arms, not pointing fingers. And Paul doesn't say, though, did you notice, walk in a manner worthy of your calling with some humility or some gentleness. Gentleness. No, he says with all humility and all gentleness, he wants the totality of your life to be influenced by your humility and gentleness. He also calls us to patience. Man, I struggle with patience. I struggle with patience with my kids, with my neighbors, with other followers of Jesus. I want people to fall in line with what I want when I want it. I get frustrated when people aren't moving fast enough, when they're not doing what I think they should be doing, when they're not thinking the way that I think they should be thinking. Maybe I'm the only one. But it isn't just patience that Paul calls us to, is it? He calls us to patience that bears with one another in love. Bears with one another, what does that mean? To put it bluntly, bearing with one another means putting up with one another. Putting up with one another. Now that's not in a begrudging way not in a grumbling way. He doesn't say just kind of grit your teeth and just push through. No, bear with one another in love. See, bearing with one another is the ability to overlook offenses. Bearing with one another is the ability to have patience with people's shortcomings. To look at someone and see their weaknesses or their failures and not give up on them or dismiss them. Why? Because you love them. Because you care for them because you believe the best about them. You are able to do this because you know and believe that they are in process just as much as you are. That that person is another person in the middle of their journey of becoming more like Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore sin or overlook sin, but you're always willing to take the speck out of your own eye before you take the plank out of someone else's eye. You're willing to walk with that person And help them grow as you pursue Jesus together. Now, why does Paul talk about all these things? Well, some people in Paul's day saw humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with others as a sign of weakness. Like those aren't good things. Those are signs of of weakness. You shouldn't want those kinds of characteristics in your life. But brothers and sisters, these don't come about because of weakness. They are wrought by grace. See, our greatest example of what this kind of life looks like is seen in Jesus. Jesus exemplified all of these characteristics fully and perfectly. He had all humility and gentleness and patience and love and bearing with others. He even describes himself in Matthew chapter 11 as gentle and lowly. These are the characteristics of Jesus's life. So let me ask you, are they the characteristics of your life? Would you describe yourself this way? Would others describe you this way? If not, and there's always going to be moments in our life where we are not doing all of these things, I want to encourage you to look to Jesus, not only as your example, but as your means to bring them about. So we have to understand that all of these things are fruits of the spirit, that they're fruits of a life that has been and is being transformed by the gospel of grace, They're evidences of grace at work in your life and in our midst. Now, why does Paul call us to live out our calling in this way, in the context of community? He does so for the sake of our unity. Verses one through three, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. See, all these characteristics that he lays out for us aren't just nice things to do. No, they are the means to foster our unity and they're built on the foundation of the gospel. But here's where we need to ask. What does unity actually mean? What is the definition for unity? Well, unity is togetherness. It's, it's oneness, not divided or in parts. Unity, according to the world, though, tends to be based off affinity or sameness. It's easy to be united with people who look like you or think like you. But that's not Paul's vision for the church. See, we have to understand that differences don't automatically equal disunity, just like uniformity doesn't automatically equal unity. No, there's something more foundational, more transcendent needed, and it's the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel creates a new community. It creates a new family. God is our father. We're adopted into this family as brothers and sisters in Christ, but it isn't a homogeneous group of people. It's beautifully diverse, men and women, people from different cultures and backgrounds and experiences, all brought together in this beautiful mosaic picture of all those parts and pieces that once were separate, that once were not a people, are brought together to be God's people. And we don't set aside those things, our diversity in the midst of that, it comes together to create this beautiful picture of who God's people can be. That means that the unity that Paul is calling us to, that he's talking about, this togetherness is rooted in something much deeper than political affiliation, much deeper than skin color, much deeper than socioeconomic status. It's a unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is a togetherness that comes about because of the work of the spirit in our lives. The one who awakened our dead souls to see the gloriousness of our savior. This kind of unity is a supernatural reality. Every person is born into this world in rebellion against God. As we saw in Ephesians 2, seeking to go our own way, trying to be self-sovereigns and self-sufficient. We are the center of our lives before we come to understand who Christ is. Which means that you can't be genuinely humble or gentle or patient or bear with one another. You can't be united with others by your own willpower. Like you can't walk out of this room today and think, I got this. I can do this. Because you just try harder to do better. No, the only way we have any of these things is by having a transformed heart and a renewed mind. And guess what? When Jesus invades your life, he gives you a new heart. And it begins to transform your thinking away from yourself and onto Jesus and others. In other words, the ability to foster unity only comes about as a result of the reality of the gospel coming to bear on your life every moment of every day to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He's bringing it back to the foundation again. But this is where I don't want us to miss something key here. Go back to verse three. Did you catch something there? He doesn't say create unity. He doesn't say build unity. No, he says maintain unity. My family and I moved into the house that we live in now about a year and a half ago. And we only moved one street over from where we used to live. We love our neighborhood. We love our neighbors. We really will hope to be there for a really long time. And so we we like our house. And so we try our best to maintain it. Make sure that the grass is cut and we pick up trash and inside keep it as clean as we kind of can in the midst of having four little kids. But we repair things. We have the HVAC service. We do all of those different things because we're trying to maintain our house. Now I could choose to leave it to disrepair. I could even do things to damage my house. But the one thing I don't have to do is build it. It's already there. I start with something that's already there And then I go from there. Our unity is the same way. You don't manufacture unity. The burden isn't placed on you to create unity. It's not something for you to build. No, it's given to you. It's been purchased for you and for us in Christ. See, because of the finished work of Jesus, you're not only reconciled to God, but to one another, Because of Jesus, you not only have peace with God, but peace with others because Jesus is our peace. What binds us together now, what unites us and sustains us then is Jesus, who he is and who we are in him. That's why I love that Paul gives us this poetic picture in verses four through six. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is beautifully amazing. What Paul's doing is he's re- reminding us of our eternally unifying reality. That we are brought together under this one God with one faith in one Savior, one Redeemer, one mediator between God and man. What this means is Jesus isn't just my Redeemer He's not just my mediator. He's your mediator and he's your mediator and he's your redeemer and he's your redeemer and he's our redeemer together. He's who binds us together. We are immersed in the sea of grace in him together. See, Paul's point is the the unity that we're called to is not only rooted in the unchanging unity of our triune God, it actually brings it about. It fosters it. We don't have to build it. We don't have to bring it about on our own. We have to walk in it and work on it, just like I have to do with my house. Now this brings us to our last point, the function of our unity, the function of our unity. Like, why does this really matter? I mean, I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's a lot easier just to hang out with people that we think like and look like. So why do we need to press into this? Well, notice Paul doesn't say maintain unity when it's convenient for you. Maintain unity when it comes to mind or when it's easy. No, he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, eager to maintain unity. Eager has a sense of urgency. It's not something to be left for later or put on the back burner of life. It's pressing and important and it requires attention and intentionality. Eager means make every effort, and he doesn't give any caveats or conditions for when we don't need to do that. So why does this matter? Unity matters for our church's health and our church's mission. So we have to understand that our great adversary, he doesn't have a lot of tricks, he doesn't have a lot of schemes, but the ones he does have, he uses with surgical precision, In disunity and division among God's people is chief among them. See, the church is called to be a compelling community to the world around us, a world that is in desperate need of rescue. The church is supposed to be a picture of God's redemptive purposes and gospel outcomes that when someone who doesn't yet know Christ looks at God's people collectively together, they see the effects of Jesus being king in our life lived out as we live with one another. Does Jesus really actually change people's lives, they wonder. So Satan is going to come hard against that. He's going to stoke wounds and press on hurts and grudges. He's going to exploit cracks into chasms, seeking to drive us apart. Not by fostering unity, but by fostering resentment and anger and bitterness and selfishness. And listen, whenever unity is not present among God's people, the indicator for us in that is that the redeeming grace of the gospel then is not central to our life together. Which means that instead of working to grow and make disciples, what happens when we start to go down that road is we become disoriented and we become distracted and we focus on things that aren't that important. And that's not what I want for you. That's not what I want for us and for our church. So, how do we strive to eagerly maintain unity that has been purchased for us and given to us in Christ? We come back to this text, we root ourselves in our gospel calling, we remember what. Our reality was and is that we were dead in our sin, but have been made alive in Christ. We remind ourselves of the reality, the unifying reality of verses four through six, and we put on the Christ-like characteristics of verse two. All of this is the antidote for division and disunity. It's the the anti-venom to the bite of selfishness and sin. And the amazing thing is, when you and I commit to doing this, to maintaining unity, it's not only good for our church, it's good for those around us as we exemplify the reality of the gospel to the world. Listen, my hope, one of my hopes for our church is that we would be a community that's only explainable because of the gospel. It's only explainable because of the gospel. So when those outside the church look at us, do they see that? Will they see that? They look at us and say, wait, you like that team and they like that team. How do you guys get along? Jesus. They voted for that person and you voted for that person. How in the world do you guys get along? Jesus. Wait, you have this much money and they have that much money. How do you guys get along again? Jesus. You're from that culture and that background, and you're from this culture and this background. How in the world do you get along? Jesus. Church, the world is longing for something like this. We live in such a divided culture, such a divided world right now. Let's not perpetuate division, but be an exemplar for what unity can be and what it looks like. Not because we're empowered, but and of ourselves, but because Jesus is king. So when people look at our community, look at how we live life with one another, we can show it to them and invite them to be a part of it and say, it's not us, it's Christ in us. Listen, last week was awesome, but now we have to move forward. We get to move forward together. And right now we're in the midst of change and change can be hard. Things aren't always, aren't the way they've always been. And change is a prime opportunity for division. A prime opportunity for disunity and distraction because change presses on our preferences and our comforts. See, sometimes we may not be aware of this, but we take our preferences and we turn them into laws. And when someone violates the laws of our little kingdoms, what do we demand? Justice. How dare you violate my law? But you know what? Your preferences aren't laws because you aren't the king of your kingdom. This isn't your church. It's not my church. It's Jesus's church. And as followers of the King of Kings, who, 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 who in humility took on our humanity and laid down his rights for who he actually is and took on the form of a servant. Then we too can lay down our preferences in order to consider the needs of others as more important than our own. But you know what? It most likely won't be in the big things. It'll be in the little things. There's going to be a song sung on a Sunday morning and you just say, I don't like that or a phrase or a word that's used and it just kind of doesn't sit well with you, you don't care for it. Or maybe there's a leader or another member that you look around at and they just kind of rub you the wrong way. What do you do when that happens? You come back to this text. And you ask yourself, am I remembering who I am in Christ? Am I remembering who they are in Christ? Am I believing the best about my brother or sister? Am I remembering the unifying reality of our faith? What actually binds us together? Am I putting on these Christ-like characteristics of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love? We gave Members, of a book last week called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you weren't here last week, we have some more out in the lobby for you. He says that too often we come into Christian community with idealist dreams. The problem with that is that we love our dreams of community more than we love our community. It's why Paul is urging us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. It's why Jesus, the night before he went to, was betrayed and crucified, prayed for the unity of his people. Why? Because they know it's hard. It goes against our old nature. It goes against the way that the world does things. But it's so important for our church's health. It's so important for our church's mission. See, having a correct view of community, of the church, means we don't hang on to our preferences. It means we don't have ideas of perfect community where everyone always gets along and looks and thinks just like I do, and nobody's feelings ever get hurt. A realistic view, a correct view of community, instead sees every interaction and every relationship as an opportunity to experience grace, to extend grace, to remind one another of what Christ has done for us. All of us. See, the reality of gospel community is we are a bunch of messy people with messy lives who are in the process of being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. As imperfect as you are and I am, though, the reality is we need one another. We need one another. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, Christian community is not an ideal which we must realize, but a reality in which we may participate. So let me ask you, are you ready to jump in? Are are you ready to participate and pursue this together? And I hope the answer is a resounding yes and amen. Yes, this is who we desire to be. Brothers and sisters, this is my longing for us together as a church. It's why we have things like the membership commitment and ask you to sign it. You're putting your name down there, committing to one another saying, I am with you and I am for you and I'm not going anywhere. Listen, we are all people in process on the road to becoming more like Jesus. We are in different places, but let's not forget we're going in the same direction. And if we want to go far, we go together. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be a faithful church, we must be a united church. And if we're going to be a united church, we must remember our gospel foundation and strive to live with all humility and gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. To that I say, Amen. God, make it so.